So recently, um, in the New York Times, there was an article about a meditation retreat. <laughs> so um, this guy, apparently Robert Wright, went to one of the meditation centers. It's, it sounds as if it could have been Spirit Rock, but I'm not exactly sure if it was or not. So he writes, meditation retreats, at least at, at, least at this place, are no picnic. You don't follow your bliss. You learn not to follow your bliss, to let your bliss follow you. And you learn this arduously. If at the end you feel like you're leaving Shangri-La, that's because the beginning felt like Guantanamo. <laughs> we spent five hours a day in sitting meditation, three and a half hours a day in walking meditation. By day three, I was feeling achy and very far from nirvana and really really sick of the place. I was sick of my 8 a.m. yogi job, which was vacuuming. I was sick of the vegetarian food. I wasn't particularly fond of all those Buddhists with those self-satisfied looks on their faces, walking serenely like they knew something I didn't know. And what I hated most of all was that I wasn't succeeding as a meditator. You're not supposed to think of succeeding during meditation. You're not supposed to blame yourself for failing. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I love that. In the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. So you're not alone in the blah, blah, blah we really quickly get to see how the mind works. You know, all our needs are taken care of. Actually, I mean, the vegetarian food is really quite spectacular. The accommodations are, you know, you will not get these kind of accommodations in Asia, I guarantee you. <laughs> you know, and we have the staff that caters to all of our needs, we have the teachings, and we create these conditions for stillness and tranquility. And is that what happens? Is the mind still and peaceful? So regardless of how we place our intentions to come and, and allow the mindfulness to rest in the breath or with the loving-kindness practice, the mind gets distracted. It gets pulled away from the present moment. And actually, the root of the word distraction means to pull apart. And what is maybe even more extreme is, is that the word distracted in Shakespeare's time was actually a synonym for the word insane, that our mind gets pulled apart. So that even though we know that the Buddha offered the teaching that 24 hours of moment-to-moment of -moment mindfulness is more precious than a hundred years without it. It's really difficult to live that intention because we are constantly, the conditioning of our mind is to actually change the moment that arises. And as soon as a sensation arises, if it's pleasant, we want more of it. If it's unpleasant, we push it away. 
And all of that is what we think our experience should be. And all of a sudden, we're actually living a thought, as opposed to living the life that is actually there. So we practice incrementally, step by step. We notice the details of our experience, starting with a relatively neutral object of the breath. Sometimes it's, it's body points. Sometimes um, it's other touch points of the body. It's a very simple instruction, but it's actually really difficult to apply as, as you're getting a sense of. And really, the invitation over and over again is to simply notice the moment, get out of the way of our minds, and just simply notice the life that's being lived. Meeting and paying attention to the moment with this gentle kindness. This is why the mindfulness and the metta practice are so close. I think we've said this before, but it's, re, it, it's, it's worth repeating over and over again that the aspect of paying attention is our experience of love. So my husband Stephen and I, his, his um, daughter just had um, her first child, so uh, Stephen is, is raising um, his first granddaughter. and. Um, it's so clear when I watch that interaction of this new being coming into life that that being's experience of love is the amount of ten- attention that is, is given to her. And whether we've been parents or not, we've all been children, and we can, we can feel our way into, you know, in a, in a parenting situation, you can say that you love the child as much as you'd like, but unless you're paying attention to them, they don't experience it. This aspect of paying attention is our experience of love. And the more that you're able to offer yourself this practice of attention, of paying attention to your own moments as they arise. It is the experience of a very profound love that you offer to yourself. And you may not cognitively think that this feels like love, because we have all sorts of um, thoughts that we associate with love, that it should, you know, feel like this, or or it should, you know, feel warm and fuzzy, or, or, or um, it should fill this particular need. And all of those are concepts, as opposed to the direct experience of what kindness is, which is simply allowing the moment to be what it is. Simply that kind acceptance of what's unfolding. We look for love in so many places, right? Outside of ourselves. There's that, there's that line in that um, song, I can't even remember the, the movie that John Travolta was in. We look for love in all the wrong uh, places, in, um, 
looking for love in too many faces. We've all been there. And, and the invitation of this practice is really to offer ourselves that total acceptance that we sometimes look everywhere else in the world for. So our intention is to be with that present moment, that, that, that gentleness with whatever is arising for our experience. And there are energies that pull us away from that, um, from that intention. So you may find that these difficult emotions that sometimes come up get fed by additional thoughts or, or or stories that might come up, or that there's a, there's a pattern that we, we sometimes create these mountains out of molehills, that we're planning these calendars of things to do, or, or the, how our lives are going to unfold after the retreat is over. These, these energies are, are um, some things that really uh, um, hinder the clarity of what's arising in the present moment. And so in the traditional uh, teachings, they're called hindrances, and there are five of them. Arena mentioned all five um, last night. So the first two, sense desire, the wanting, the craving that, that arises from our sense doors, and aversion are very closely paired. They're even though they sound like opposites, they're actually two sides of the same coin. So desire and aversion or ill will and hatred are two of the first hindrances. The second two, uh, the third and fourth, are also paired together. That, um, that experience that we've heard in many of the group interviews um, around sloth and torpor or sleepiness, the drowsiness that arises both the physical exhaustion, but also the mental exhaustion that sometimes arrives with us during the retreat. And then there's the opposite of that, which is the restlessness, the agitation, which also can be a physical experience, but the agitation also can be a mental experience of the proliferation of the mental activity or thoughts. And the fifth one is, um, it's, it's more subtle, but also has come up in, in many of our group sessions, and that is what's called skeptical doubt. The doubting mind of whether I'm doing this right, or whether this is the right practice. That, that it's, not a, it's not a questioning that's based on curiosity, which is actually one of the factors of awakening. That curiosity allows our mindfulness to stay on the object, but it's an undermining questioning of doubting the, um, uh, the veracity or the, 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 the meaningfulness of, of what is happening. These are really impersonal energies that come up, even though it's, it can feel as if it's very personal to you. It happens 
it happens to almost everyone's practice. And so the invitation is really, again, not to get rid of them. It's not to deny or suppress them. Because as we know in, in our Western psychology, that which we repress or deny often comes back with even greater force. But it's really to turn the attention to the distraction itself. It's really to turn the attention to the, um, uh, the hindrance. Sayadaw Utejaniya, who is one of the current teachers from Burma that comes to North America to um, uh, teach with us, um, calls it making friends with these distractions or hindrances. That you actually have a friendly attitude as opposed to, as, as opposed to wanting to get rid of them. So about the, the, the first two around desire and aversion, um, there, was a, there was one retreat that I was doing here, and I, was, um, uh, I know that I had offered the walking instructions. And, and that, those walking instructions came out of my exploration of how to make these walking instructions relevant to me, because the traditional instructions were just not meaningful. I just was totally resistant to them, and I, and I wanted the instructions to be different than what they were. I, I was not interested in walking back and forth, and, and uh, I was you know, getting bored out of my mind. And, and so I, what I really wanted to do at the time was to walk in the hills, was to take, you know, to go on the ridge and, and have these expansive views, and I thought, you know, that would create the place that that would create the spaciousness that I could have a good retreat. And so, you know, what I what I wasn't aware of was the aversion that I had to to the practice itself. And so I did. I dropped the practice and I went up into the hills and I walked for two hours. I completely blew off the schedule. And I came back And I still wasn't that happy because I wanted something else. The satiation of that desire actually was very temporary. It didn't, it didn't actually satisfy or, or make me suffer less. So as I began to feel my way into this aspect of wanting, the, the object of the wanting, the object of the desire began to fall away. And my practice was actually looking at the aspect of wanting itself. It may seem that the object of our desire or our aversion is the cause of our suffering or the problem. That if it just weren't there, I wouldn't want it. But it's not the object that comes to your mind, curls around it, and attaches to it. It's actually the opposite way around. It's that our mind reaches out and curls around the object. 
And so the invitation of the practice is not to look at the object, but to look at the process, to look at this place of, of wanting. And as we direct the attention to wanting, there's a natural falling away of the object. And just to acknowledge that our culture conditions us so much to create more and more wanting, to create more and more craving. We actually glorify this aspect that we call desire. So there was a, uh, a couple of years ago, it's a, it's a phrase that I use uh, as an example because it's so telling in our culture. It's an ad for um, a car. And the, the tagline is, I want you to want me. And it's so, it's so amazing because, you know, if they were selling a codependent relationship, I kind of would like <laughs> understand the phrase. But they're selling a car. <laughs> this is how our culture reinforces that this wanting is a pot that will lead to less suffering. And as our life gets faster and faster, the pace of the wanting gets faster. So I don't know if any of you have seen this YouTube clip. This, this is just a transcription of it, but it, it's done by this comedian called Louis C.K. And, and the last time I looked, it had over two million hits. So some of you may have seen it. But you know, he's talking to one of the uh, late night talk show hosts and um, He's describing, I was on a plane and there was high-speed internet on the plane. This is the newest thing I know of. So I'm sitting on the plane and they go up, you open your laptop and you can go on the internet. This is amazing. It's fast and I'm watching YouTube clips and I'm in an airplane. And then the internet breaks down. And the guy next to me goes, this is bullshit. <laughs> Like how quickly the world owes him something that he knew existed only 10 seconds ago. <laughs> this is how quickly our culture reinforces that attachment. It's funny now, but look in your own experience of how quickly the attachment arises. It's, it's really a culture of, you know, as, as, as people have talked about, that more is better, bigger is better. And all of that is a distraction from what's true. That it's a distraction that there are consequences to feeding that wanting, to feeding that desire. Because the consequence is, is that the craving and the attachment that comes from desire can never be satiated. All craving is the craving actually for no craving. All craving seeks is that plateau of satisfaction. 
So you can see this in the extreme of alcohol and drug addiction, right? So I've, I've been, I'm in my own process of recovery, and I know that the plateau of the high is what I'm focused on. But what happens? It always crashes. It all, it's never permanent. Craving seeks its own destruction by seeking satisfaction. But satisfying craving never creates real satisfaction. And why is that? It's because craving has no insight. Craving has no wisdom. It doesn't have the ability to see the truth. It's deluded. This is what Arena has said in different ways. We actually try to say all of these things in different ways, but we end up saying the same thing because actually the teachings never change. We just try to sort of offer it in different ways, but we end up basically saying the same thing. Craving and desire cannot see the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is craving itself. It's only your mindfulness that has the ability to see that insight. Craving also does not have metta or compassion. Craving wants things to be other than the way they are, it cannot accept the present moment for what it is. But just as the mind has been conditioned to be unaware, wanting, and not accepting, it can also be conditioned to be aware, loving, and content. So. Freedom is not about getting an object to satisfy the desire. Freedom is actually exploring the desire itself, turning towards. That's the phrase that we've been using over and over again. Tilopa, who was the great Tibetan teacher several centuries ago, said, it's not outer objects which entangle us. It's the inner clinging which entangles us. And as with all aspects of our practice, the awareness of craving is not the craving itself. The awareness of your experience means that you're not lost in the experience. And in that is the doorway into the Third Noble Truth, that there is the end of suffering, that there is the end of craving that the more mindful and aware you are of the craving itself, you're not lost in it. And all of these invitations into the present moment incline us to be with what is, which is to be satisfied, to be content, 
So the last teaching of the Buddha um, is called the Bequeath Teaching Sutra. And um, uh, he says, you who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not even suit their fancy, even if they're in heaven. For people who do not know for people the people who do, do not know satisfaction are poor, even if they're rich. The people who do know satisfaction are rich, even if they're poor. It's really to explore where in your life are things okay. It's as simple as that. Where do you not need anything? And to feel your way into that experience, to cultivate that. So we'll be offering some, some um, uh, invitations around mindfulness of eating tomorrow. And part of those instructions is to uh, the invitation to stop eating five bites from full. To really notice, you know, what is it that you need to, sur- to, to um, operate, to survive on, as opposed to eating where we usually eat to, which is to the level of our wants. And that's usually way beyond what we actually need. My dad has, I never really understood this when when we were growing up. He doesn't identify as a Buddhist, but clearly he's been, uh, there's a cultural aspect to his upbringing in in mainland China that that has followed him. And you would think that he would drink green tea, which is, you know, the cultural drink of, um, but he actually drinks hot water all the time, almost. And I asked him one day, um, why do you just drink plain hot water? There's not even a lemon in it, right? And he says it makes him appreciate when he has tea or coffee. So that he doesn't forget, that he doesn't, that he, that he, that, that he doesn't forget, you know, how great those tastes are. And it's, it's a practice of contentment, really. And, and, and so it, it didn't seem that harmful. So I've taken on at that as a practice. It didn't seem that much of a renunciation. So, so I do that all the time, just to remind myself and then to check in when I do have coffee or tea. You know, it, it does become this, comes this, this precious experience as opposed to, you know, something that we take for granted. Again, that's, that's the inclination of the mind, invitation of the mindfulness practice, is, is to notice that which we usually take for granted. So when we get distracted from that place of contentment, Mindfulness is not about trying to get rid of the distraction or the busyness of the mind. The invitation is to turn the distraction into the meditation itself. And as we turn awareness towards distraction, 
we're no longer distracted. So one of the mm, common distractions you might experience is um, the thing that we call an itch. And so there's a practice around it of what is your experience of your awareness of the entire itch without making it go away. Because you know it's not going to kill you. You know that the sensations, and you know the sensations are not going to last forever, right? It's just uncomfortable. But you also know that there's a, another side of it. But you never get to see it if you keep scratching. And how often do we do this in our life? Something uncomfortable comes up and we make it go away. So it's just an invitation to see what that experience is like, to actually practice through the experience as opposed to around it. Because as, you know, in a different way, that's, that's either circumventing or denying that experience, and it will come back. What happens when we don't fully turn toward, when we're not aware of the distractions? So this is a little passage. I don't know who wrote this, but it's, um, it, it speaks to this, this, this aspect of how distracted we can get in our lives. I decide to water my garden. As I turn on the hose in the driveway, I look at the car and decide it needs washing. As I start toward the garage, towards the garage, I notice the mail on the porch table that I brought up from the mailbox earlier. I decide to go through the mail before I wash the car. I lay down my car keys on the table, put the junk mail in the garbage can underneath the table, and notice that the can is full. So I decide to put the bills back on the table and take out the garbage first. But then I think I'm going to be near the mailbox when I take out the garbage anyway, so I might as well pay the bills. I take out my checkbook and see there's only one check left. My extra checks are in the study, so I go inside to my desk where I find the can of Coke that I've been drinking. I go to look for my check, but I need to push the can of Coke aside so I don't accidentally knock it over. The Coke is getting warm, so I decide to put it in the refrigerator. As I head towards the kitchen with the Coke, the vase of flowers on the counter catches my eye, and they need water. It actually goes on. <laughs> and at the end of the day, the car isn't washed, the bills aren't paid, there's a warm can of Coke sitting on the counter, the flowers don't have enough water, there's still only one check in my checkbook, and I can't find the remote to the TV. When I try to find out why I've gotten nothing done today, I'm really baffled because I know that I was really busy and I'm really tired. <laughs> I realize this is a serious problem. I'm going to try to get some help, but first I'm going to check my email. <laughs> the power of distraction can actually drive the energy of our life. So in the, in the current workplace terminology, there's actually this term that's coming into use called continuous partial attention. That's deep. Continuous partial attention. It's, you know, and if you, and if you 
agree with that experience that paying attention is our experience of love. That's like saying incomplete loving all the time. You know, it's really, it's an oxymoron. So when the distractions arise, when the hindrances arise, what is, what I'm, um, I want to talk about the dimensionality of our mindfulness. So um, a couple of years ago, um, I don't know why I particularly remember this, this restaurant, but um, uh, we were on vacation in Agunquit, which is um, uh, a gay, lesbian, queer resort in, in Maine. And we were in this restaurant that was just really loud. And um, there was a, a baby that was clearly really disturbed by the noise. And um, as the restaurant was getting louder and louder, um, the baby's cries were getting louder and louder and louder. And yet the adults didn't seem perturbed at all. Because on some level, the adults were able to filter the distraction of the noise out into the background. And the young child didn't have that capacity to actually shift the attention from the foreground to the background. So experiment with yourself, even as I'm speaking right now. I mean, up until now, it may be that the sound of my voice is in the foreground of your experience. But is it possible to simply treat even the words that I'm speaking uh, right now as sound and push it into the background and pull something else into the foreground of your awareness? So that, so that it may be you know, one of the lights in the room or the background sounds that you're hearing. That, that there's a dimensionality to our awareness that we can play with, that we, we actually don't deny the existence of the distraction, but we simply allow it to be in the background. This is particularly helpful when I have a chronic pain issue that arises because the chronic pain doesn't go away. But it's a place to explore, does it have to be in the foreground of your experience? Or can you pull something else like the breath or some other physical sensation? The transformation of distraction into attention is a process. It takes time, so just allowing that, that practice of compassion to hold the unfolding of this transition of distraction towards attention. It takes time to, to unravel why we get so compelled by these hindrances and distractions. Sometimes because they have these pleasant and unpleasant situations to them, or sensations to them, and we react 
immediately to the pleasant, unpleasant um, sensations. So we'll be talking about the practice of Vedana later in the retreat, of simply noticing the pleasant sensation without needing to move on it, without needing to want more. And we can notice the unpleasant sensations without needing to push them away. And this is what I was, I can't remember whether it was last night or this morning, but this was what I was talking about, that we have this capacity to notice the impulse and not act. This is actually a highly evolved capacity. That we are actually not bound by external conditions. It's actually a very radical way of living, that we are, don't have to be driven by our distractions. And these, this process, as I'm saying, of, of um, turning towards the distractions may unfold in unexpected ways. So I'm working with, with someone um, who is unable to come on a retreat like this, and so I, I talk with him once a week or so and check in on his practice. And, and, um, and so he's just like you know, the instructions that, that we've been given, um, he's practicing at home. And over the, in the beginning, the, his thoughts were very much like what, what has been reported in, in many of our groups, in that there's this incessant, you know, a prolif- proliferation of what's going to be happening in the next week, planning, um, trying to figure out problems, and um, really, taking him away from any intention to be with the breath or sensations of the body. But over time, I would say two or three weeks, what he noticed was that the thoughts were still there, but he noticed that um, uh, the thoughts were about the breath, about, you know, should I be doing this with the breath? Should I be doing that with the breath? Should I be breathing long or short? Or it was something about his meditation, like should I be sitting, you know, how should I be holding my posture? And, and it was a very interesting process for him to notice that, that his mind was settling down. You know, all of the distracted thoughts about his job or his relationship or the fact that he was, you know, in the middle of selling a house, those weren't the thoughts that were that were arising. Thoughts were still arising, but they were about the meditation itself. That's very interesting. It's a very interesting way in, the, in which the, mi- the mind was settling. But it certainly wasn't the way that he expected the mind to settle. What's that 12-step mantra? Progress, not perfection, right? So there's kindness in that mantra of just seeing how it unfolds. There is a larger collective purpose in paying attention. How many times has the experience of distraction been used against us when we're creating positive change in our society? whether it's the issue of Prop 8 or health care. People create distractions so that 
the real issues are not addressed. We get, as a community, as a queer community, we get buffeted by the messages that we are unworthy or that we don't, that phrase that I, that I offered from Buddha Dasa, that, um, that we don't have a place in the midst of all things. And these messages often come in the form of heterosexist or racist or sexist or transphobic messages of oppression. As you cultivate the ability to pay attention and refrain from being distracted, there will be a clarity about the life you are called to live. That is the life that you expressed (coughs) the very first (coughs) evening you got here when you invoked those energies into the room. I often read this for people who are new to this retreat because I think it's a beautiful description of what's possible. I am old enough that when I came of age, being queer was still listed as a mental disorder. Boys in my high school used to boast of going and rolling queers. With very few precious exceptions, sex was something desperate, dangerous, and done with someone you didn't know. Nowhere I looked, nowhere were there any positive role models or messages. All this comes from the unquestioned heterosexist privilege that still is to a great extent with us. A person doesn't just get over growing up like that. In the, in, a person doesn't just get over growing up in that kind of environment. I have dealt with debilitating self-esteem and depression all my life. So in the retreat last weekend, I experienced a momentary thawing of my frozen heart that I am quite sure would not have happened in any other retreat. It was so beautiful to me to be in the company of other queer-identified folks, each having humbly come to practice. And this huge lump of unprocessed pain began to move. There is more than just the possibility of healing. There is a path that is offered as our life is being lived. That the Buddha said leads to freedom. So my own story of that process, one of the stories that keeps me rooted in this tradition is when I went over um, to Thailand to ordain. And uh, some of you knew me before I went, and I had very long hair, uh, and I had it for most of my life um, since I was 13. And I went over to Thailand uh, in when I was... Um, 54. So, um, so of course, during the ordination procedure, the hair comes off, right? So, um, uh, we, there was um, a huge ritual around the cutting of the hair. And uh, uh, Stephen, we, had, we hadn't gotten married yet, but Stephen was there representing the family. And, and uh, after my preceptor 
cut three locks of the hair for the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Um, I wanted Stephen to cut off the ponytail. And after he did that, the rest of the um, Western Sangha, uh, about 20 people, each began to cut hair off of my head. And there, at, towards the end of it, the, um, a monk got a, one of those Gillette razor blades that you unscrew from the bottom and you put the double-edged razor on top. And he started to, you know, I, they shampooed my hair and they started to, like, cut. And as soon as that blade hit my head, all these memories of hair, because it was such an important, you know, like thing in my life, came into my consciousness of, you know, at the California men's gathering, they, they had, we did these crazy skits. And, and I had them, you know, they, this shows my age, but um, uh, they had me done up as Bo Derek. And, and, and the plays that I used to do in college and the arguments that I had with my mother about cutting the hair and, and as these flashes of memory that come in, in our meditative state, I, I came to the a memory that I had completely forgotten of why I had this long hair. And I was 13 and I was standing in front of a mirror and the memory was so vivid because I was crying in front of the mirror because I hated how I looked. I hated the fact that I knew I was different from other boys. I hated the fact that I was this uh, round-faced Asian boy in the middle of you know, a European-American suburb and I wanted to look different. And I didn't know how to live my life in that pain. So I decided to grow my hair, to change the way that I looked. And I completely forgot that. And as that blade cut, you know, it was like I could, I, it was like. Uh, um, what do you call it, a power saw cutting, you know, through, because it was so, you know, it was a sound that I had never heard. All I could do was be with those emotions and and the moment-to-moment experience of that sadness and that rage, that rage of that internalized racism and homophobia that had driven my life for decades that I was unconscious of, that was coming to the surface. You know, Stephen was there taking pictures of me and, you know, the tears, you know, I'm sure he thought there were tears of joy. And it was like I was going through something completely different. (laughs) And as I stayed with that experience, moment to moment, I gave myself the attention that at 13 I had no capacity to give and offer myself. I, all I wanted at the age of 13 was the experience to go away. And now I had the tools, now I had, I had the, the foundation to really turn towards suffering, 
and as I allowed my awareness to go through the experience, it began to fall away. There was a deep letting go. And again, it was a process. So I went through the ordination and I spent some time in Thailand and I came back and I looked different. And so um, some of my dyke friends, well, the first question that, that arose was, so when did you butch it out? <laughs> and, you know, but the next question was, are you going to grow your hair long again? And I said, I don't know, but if I do, it'll be for different reasons. This path of purification is a purification of our hearts. It's a purification of our lives, about who we think we are. We don't have a choice of what we purify. It just comes up. And can we be present for it? Can we be there with that kindness of our attention that no one else is going to give us? And sometimes that internalized suffering goes to the core of who we think we are. The possibility of the Third Noble Truth is to invite us into the experience that we are so much more than who we think we are. We are so much more than our suffering. And can we be with that lived experience of that totality? These moments of healing are moments of freedom. When we pay attention to who we really are, and when we pay attention to the potential of who we can become. As we provide these moments of freedom for ourselves, We also provide it for those that are around us. So I told that story at um, a retreat in Yucca Valley this year. And um, one of the um, women that I was meeting with, um, she had a family, she was married, uh, had children. And she told me the story, she, she prefaced that she's had a sad story, but it wasn't a bad story. It was, and, and, and she said that she's trained as a psychologist, but one of the reasons that um, she went into psychology is because her um, younger brother killed himself um, at the age of 21. And the family went through a lot of soul searching um, around why this occurred and went through, you know, the possibility that he was bipolar or depressed or, but when it was all said and done, it was really clear that he killed himself because he was gay and of the intense self-hatred that he was not able to get support for. And actually that's not the reason she shared the story with me. She shared the story because 
as she heard a story about the Dharma transforming the suffering of a gay man, she realized that all these years in the intervening time, she had only felt the sensations of her grief and loss. That she had never really felt the pain of what her brother might have been going through at the time. And in that space of opening up to someone else's pain, she began to feel closer to him than ever before. And it really brought her to another place of, of acceptance of this tragedy. And that she finally had something to share with her mother so that she could also work through some additional healing of losing a young child. We cannot expect how we are going to affect those around us, but we do. This is not about our own salvation or enlightenment. It is about transforming our communities and our experience with the world. The invitation is not to be distracted from those highest intentions of your practice. Do not be distracted from those intentions that you brought into the room that first night. So I would like to end with a, a passage from Thich Nhat Hanh's new book um, called Answers from the Heart, in which he speaks directly to our community in such a beautiful way. We are different, but we share the same ground of being. You should be yourself. If God created me as a rose, then I should accept myself as a rose. If you are a lesbian, then be a lesbian. Look deeply into your nature and you will see, uh, you will see yourself as you truly are. You will be able to touch the ground of your being and find peace. If you are a victim of discrimination, then your way to emancipation is not simply by crying out against injustice. Injustice cannot be repaired by recognition alone, but by your capacity to touch the ground of your being. If you are capable of touching the ground of your being, you can be released from the suffering that has been created in you through the discrimination and oppression. Once you have touched the depth and the nature of your ground of being, you will be equipped with a kind of understanding that can give rise to compassion and tolerance. And you will be capable of forgiving even those who discriminate against you. Do not believe that relief or justice will come through society alone. True emancipation lies in your capacity to look deeply. When you break through to the truth, <coughs> compassion springs up like a stream of water. Don't wait for things to change around you. You have to practice liberating yourself. Then you will be equipped with the power of compassion and understanding, the only kind of power 
that can help transform an environment filled with injustice and discrimination. You have to become such a person, one who can embody tolerance, understanding, and compassion. You transform yourself into an instrument for social change and for change in the collective consciousness of humanity. The Buddha said he would not teach that which we could not do, and that freedom is possible.